This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The 86 Biggest Lies on Wall Street, our guest today, John R. Talbot, exposes the lies and then exposes us to the truth of what it will take to rebuild our economy. As a former investment banker at Goldman Sachs, Talbot knows firsthand how the financial system operates and how to fix it. Talbot is the author of six previous books on economics and politics, including The Coming Housing Crisis, He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle, and Alternet. John Talbot, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Good to hear. And we were just listening to a recording of uh, Hank Paulson from September of 2007, where he describes the U.S. economy at that point as healthy how strong and uh, how healthy and resilient was our economy back then in 2007 when Paulson was delivering the statement? Well, you're talking about the first lie in the book, right, which is... Uh, <laughs> Pretty much so. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't want to give people the impression that we had this enormously strong economy and then some minor hiccup in the subprime mortgage business threw us off our game plan because... Part of the reason I'm pessimistic about what the government has done to date in trying to reform uh, the system is they haven't gone far enough. They've treated this as if it's just a problem of, you know, spending a little bit more money here, borrowing a bit more there, you know, lowering interest rates, getting back and rebounding like typical recessions do. And, And this problem is much more fundamental than that and needs much more fundamental reform. And so what I point to in the first lie is not that, you know, everything was hunky-dory until the uh, subprime crisis, but there were lots of warning signs before that. I mean, we we had had, what, six or seven near-world crises over the last 30 years, which we threw money at, and they went away. Uh, in addition to that, you know, our stock market had increased tremendously over 25 years, But if you go back and look at the numbers, a lot of that was due to crushing the union movement in our country, putting workers in competition with very low-wage workers around the world, and thus lowering the cost of labor for big corporations and and really just transferring that labor uh, wealth up to the uh, owners of the level. And then finally, uh, in the last eight or nine years, Uh, you can show that there was a tremendous growth in leverage uh, debt in the United States, both corporate and personal and banking and government debt, grew from $25 trillion to $65 trillion. And that went to buy stuff. You know, individuals borrowed against their homes and bought more homes, cars, boats, vacations. Well, you know, you could make an argument that it's not really the same when you buy a boat for cash as when you buy a boat for credit or for credit against your house. It's, you really haven't earned the boat yet. So, mm-hmm. so if, if, if ever that uh, lending ceased, as we're seeing now, uh, one, you wouldn't expect a lot of boat sales in the future, and two, 
people would have to repay all that debt, so it would put a real hamper on future growth. So, so when you think through it all, uh, I don't think there was really any real big growth in the economy over the last 20 years. I think a lot of it was artificial. You know, I remember a moment during the uh, debate between Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle back during the when uh, George the first was running for president. And Quayle was going on about this robust economy and uh, how great it was and the American, you know, lower taxes and all that, sort of the Reagan mantra. And then Benson turned to him and said, you know, if I was running an economy on a credit card, I could make anything look good. I don't know if you remember that moment during these debates, but it struck me, it stayed with me, and it's something that I think has just become... Uh, kind of the uh, uh, the mantra of uh, of the Republican. Uh, well, I, I don't want to tie this to one political party. The Democrats certainly had a hand in this, but it's become kind of the the uh, the catchphrase or the the uh, strategy for the U.S. economy over these last twenty five or thirty years. Yeah, no, that's a great line. Lloyd Benson was very close to Bob Rubin, my old boss at Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. and if you remember, it was Bob Rubin who convinced. Uh, Bill Clinton to pay down government debts, uh, to raise taxes slightly on the wealthy, and, to, and what he what he turned over to George Bush the second was a two hundred fifty billion dollar annual surplus, projections of literally trillions of dollars of debt being paid down over five to eight, eight years. So much so that Alan Greenspan was concerned that the junk, that the bond business, the government bond business, would go out of business, that there wouldn't be any new Treasury issues to, to trade. Uh, well, George Bush took care of that. He, he gave a $3 trillion giveaway to the wealthy in a form of a tax cut in 2001, and he took a $250 billion surplus and turned it into a what is now a $2 trillion deficit, annual deficit. Is there something just about is it a, is it about our financial system? Is it about our regulatory system? What is it about our current uh, economic system that fails to uh, realistically address these issues? What is it that we? Why is it that we lack the will to actually put things in place, put regulations in place to prevent these kinds of things from happening? And once they have occurred stepping up and, and instituting the proper reforms. What is it about this system now, as it is, that refuses to do that? Well, I always go back to the advice from, uh, from the Watergate uh, episode, which is follow the money. I mean, you have to ask yourself, who benefits from all of this government spending? And the answer is big corporations, right? I mean, if you look at the Iraq war... You know, I'm sure uh, we had some major battles over seven years in which some brave Americans lost their lives, but mostly we just transferred trillions of dollars to the Halliburtons of the world to provide $62 breakfast to our troops, you know, and, 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 and do an enormous reconstruction in Iraq after we bombed most of their buildings and bridges. So, um, you know, I, you know I, just, I just think you follow the money. I, I think... The reason why Americans, you know, just like yourself and myself, don't think we can have much influence is because we can't. I mean, we, we can vote for one of two alternatives, but uh, it really doesn't make much difference because the Bill Clintons and even to some extent the, uh, the Barack Obamas, once they get in office, their hands are tied. They're surrounded 
by a corrupt Congress, which is controlled by big business through lobbying and campaign contributions. And they live in a town where there's no major industry other than lobbying, and yet rush hour goes on for 20 hours a day. The two wealthiest suburbs in the country are both suburbs of Washington, D.C., and the city's seen its growth from 400,000 people to close to 4 million people who are all in the lobbying business. So, so I, you know, I'm not optimistic until you get after that problem that we'll be able to get control of our government again. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, that has a direct influence on what caused this crisis with the banks. We're speaking with John R. Talbot. The book is The 86 Biggest Lies on Wall Street. And you talk like there's no real solution to the problem. It's And it's not a matter of Republicans uh, versus Democrats at all. Am I characterizing what you're saying here properly? No, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's simply about incumbents versus non-incumbents. Uh-huh. Um, the, the reason why our democracy has failed and, and voting doesn't make any difference anymore is these incumbents raise tens of millions of dollars in their campaign funds, and anybody who runs against them gets outspent in TV commercials, and regardless of how good the candidate might be, uh, he gets buried in the last week with false accusations and TV advertising that nobody can overcome. And so we have this strange world where Congress has an 11% approval rating, and yet 98% of our congressmen are reelected. And they try to justify it, saying, well, everybody likes their local congressman. No, no, that's not true. What's true is that local congressman is spending so much money, and he's an incumbent, and he has this incumbent advantage of having all this money sloshing around that no one can defeat him. And to make sure of it, uh, he's gerrymandered his congressional district so that it just includes his supporters. And why did the opposition let him do that? Because the opposition gerrymandered the district across town so that they controlled it. So, they, you know, they've totally ruined our whole system of, yeah. of democratic election. And the question is, you know, how do you cut off the money? I think you have to get back to the money sort. You have to get... It's not even in their interest to corrupt our Congress because, you know, big business did a little bit of money here and still breaks and tax subsidies, et cetera. But when they control your Congress and industry writes the rules of how you conduct business, they miss out on the biggest issues. They miss out on what are called collective action problems, which are not addressed by uh, narrow, self-interested individuals and corporations. And, and those are the basis of government. I mean, you can't have a free market without protecting property rights, without enforcing contracts, without enforcing fraud. And, and if you allow fraudulent institutions to control your Congress and not, and, and not supervise and not enforce laws, well, you're going, you're going to have the, the deterioration of the markets that we've seen over this last three-year period. Well, speaking of not enforcing laws, uh, where does the Security Exchange Commission and our, our good friend Chris Cox here in Orange County, where do they play in all of this uh, in our our economic situation right now? Well, you know, some people argue that Chris Cox is not an elected official, so he doesn't fit into this theory I've just espoused. Yeah. But his, his boss, George Bush, definitely is. And George Bush, you know, a lot of people ask now, how did we elect this guy, right? One of the most incompetent presidents in history. And the answer is he controlled a lot of money. Him and his supporters 
were these big corporations and wealthy families that were looking for tax cuts and, and monopoly advantages and other advantages, uh, you know, globalization, supposedly to open markets, but again, to punish the American worker. Uh, and, and he was their man, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I, I think they were, were, were well compensated for it. The, he, he appointed Chris Cox to the SEC. We don't have the phone conversations, but it clearly was in order to Chris Cox to stand down. Chris Cox basically fired half the people in the enforcement division, didn't pursue any major enforcement of market manipulation or stock insider trading, which is the reason he's there. And as we've seen, when the Bernie Madoff thing was presented as a fait accompli through a series of emails to him, he totally ignored them. That wasn't an oversight. That's what George Bush told him to do. And, and and part of the frustration we have today, you see, is we don't have these telephone calls. We don't have these email exchanges because there's no investigation going on. Everybody wants to turn the page quickly and go on to the future, but we can't go on to the future until we clean up the past and understand the past because, like I said, the reforms that are needed are fundamental. I want to. I want to. We're speaking with John R. Talbot. The uh, the book is the eighty six biggest lies on Wall Street, and I, I want to start knocking off some of these uh, uh, some of these lies that that you talk about in the book. Um, number two, this is simply a sub uh, prime mortgage problem that no one could have foreseen. Uh, you obviously saw it. You talked about it in your two thousand and three book, The Coming Housing Crisis. But what, how is it that this lies, this lie in particular, has been able to become part of our, uh, our, our thinking in this crisis? Well, it's become part of our thinking because the media repeat, repeats it every day. And so much so that you have to wonder, you know, what the media involvement in, in this whole episode is, right? Well, what were you looking at that they refused to look at in terms of the data? What, what, what was it about this particular lie? Uh, that's, what, what purpose did it serve? to say that no one could have seen this coming, I guess. It serves a very important purpose, right? I mean, listen to my explanation, which is this was planned, this was preventable, this was foreseeable, and as a matter of fact, a lot of this had to do with fraudulent and criminal behavior. When you hear my explanation, your first question is, who? Who is being criminal? Let's go arrest them. Look at the damage they've caused. Let's put some people in jail. Let's bankrupt some companies and replace their management. It's a completely different scenario than what we're doing now. What we're doing now is arguing, and Alan Greenspan's the biggest proponent of this, is that all of this was just a hundred-year flood. This, no one could have foreseen this coming. This happens regularly in business cycles. This is completely normal. Well, if that's the case, there's nothing to be done other than give the banks some money, put them back in business, keep the existing managements in place, and go about business as it always has been conducted. But but I can tell you, uh, it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong because the reason the system failed uh, had nothing to do with normal business cycles. The, the big reason the banking system got in trouble is that back in 33, we instituted depositor insurance at our banks to prevent bank runs, which sounded like a good idea at the time. But we know there's such a thing as moral hazard whenever you introduce such large guarantees. And what happened was depositors no longer cared about what businesses the banks got into, how risky those businesses were, what 
how risky the assets and derivatives were that the banks held on and off balance sheet, and most importantly, how leveraged and how much risk that created for the banks. Well, back in 33, everybody knew that if you were going to provide deposit or insurance, you were going to take the market mechanism out of managing these banks, and you were going to have to put in very stiff regulation, and they did so. They regulated exactly that. They regulated bank leverage. They regulated the assets they could hold and the businesses they could get into. And over time, through the bank lobbying efforts, they got rid of all that regulation. And they took their leverage from 8 to 1 to 40 to 1. They did stuff off balance sheet. They completely deregulated the derivatives business, and they allowed them to get into the investment banking business. And they, all- came, and they came up with instruments that no one can understand or explain. But, but this wasn't, didn't happen by accident, yeah, right? Yeah. This was all pre-planned. And when I tell you the story of CDOs and how these institutions turned absolute junk paper, you know, of mortgages signed by illegal aliens and taxi drivers in Vegas, you know, who owned six homes, when they turned that paper, which you know, had no application, no job verification, no income verification, when they turned that junk paper into AAA paper, then you'll see the criminality because then you'll see the billions of dollars they paid the rating agencies and all the middlemen to convince the investors around the world that these were good investments. I had a personal moment about a year ago. I happened to stumble across the Wall Street Journal. I don't read all the time, but I read once in a while. And I saw this story about these CDOs, these credit debt, debt obligations. And my first reaction was, I'm not an economist. I'm just a guy who you know, just a guy who reads a little bit. And I, the first time I read this thing, I thought, no, this doesn't sound good. This does not sound like a good idea at all. And I can't, and I'm not, I'm not an economist. And I just, it made, it made no sense to me what was going on. And it, you know, it goes to what you're speaking about, which is why did anyone else think it was a good idea other than some kind of a criminal enterprise, which is what it seems that we were embarked on. Um, I have a question. You just mentioned the ratings companies. This is Standards and Poor, Fitch, and I've forgotten the third one. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Moody's. Moody's. Now, what is their arrangement? What is their complicity in all this? It seems to me that these didn't, by magic, turn into AAA-rated uh, investments. They had to know in the, within the, within the uh, confines of their own business that this was junk. What was going on with them? Well, again, we need to have that investigation, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the first thing that happens whenever there's a uh, criminal event, the, the, the thing you always see on television is you always see the FBI carrying the computers out of the offices, right? Yeah. I mean, we all know you can't erase emails, right? They always sit on some hard drive somewhere. Well, I haven't seen those pictures yet of this episode. J- just the opposite. It sounds to me, it looks to me like the FBI has been told to stand down. But... Uh, but, yeah, the rating agencies are, are ground, ground zero of this event, right? They, they were being paid by the issuer to tell the investor that they had a good investment. Well, that makes no sense. They, they were companies that were, you know, small little agents in the business of Wall Street. While Wall Street was making billions, they were making $10,000 to put a rating on something just kind of procedurally until CDOs came along, and then they got paid $2 billion dollars to put ratings on CDOs. It's kind of suspicious, right? Yeah. So 
So, and the, you know, and wh- where were they getting their marching orders, and what did they know, and, uh, and are there emails saying that they were selling crap to these investors around the world? Sure, there are, but we just have to get at them. It, some of it's starting to come, come ex- be exposed now. There's a new academic paper I just read about this morning. The guy doesn't have access to the internal emails, so what he did is he just looked at the statistics of what they were rating, and he showed that issuers were shopping the ratings. If they didn't like the rating they got from one firm, they went to another. And the way he proved this is he shows statistically that those issuances of mortgage-backed bonds that had only one rating agency were much more likely to default and in default recover much less money. And so what it tells you is where there was broad agreement amongst all the rating agencies on what the proper rating was and there was no shopping going on, uh, those were much safer investments. To what to what extent a little I need an economic uh, lesson a primer here. Uh, to what extent do the these ratings companies Moody's and and Standards and Poor and Fitch what role do they play in setting expectations for profits with companies? Uh, this is a system I don't quite understand. Uh, a company can be profitable. But they can lose money or they can lose stock value if they're not profitable enough according to a set of expectations. How is it that this system came into play, and what role has it played in this meltdown, this this economic meltdown? Well, you know, the the Wall Street divides into two areas, right? Okay. Equity research and and debt research, right? Right. So what what you're describing is more on the equity side with the research analysts, and, and they aren't without fault, as a matter of fact. They had their crisis back when the high-tech boom bust, right, back in 2000. And, and again, there wasn't enough investigation then as to what the causes of the crisis were, or else we would have exposed that a lot of those research analysts had huge conflicts of interest and were promoting high-tech stocks that they themselves thought were complete crap, right? Yeah. So, so there is a, there, you know, there is kind of a general principle that, that cuts across both crises. But this crisis was on the debt side. Okay. And on the debt side, the rating agencies hold supreme because people look to those ratings for instruments which they don't have time to analyze. And, and this is a, a line number 21 in the book. But the entire theory of modern finance, which values all risk and values all assets in the world, is based on one assumption that investors are wholly diversified globally. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it just seems so logical to people that if you diversify your holdings, you can minimize your risk. Yeah. Well, it turns out it, it turns out not necessarily to be true, because what happens is some small pension fund for a bank in Germany ends up wanting to diversify across all the assets of the world. What does he do? He ends up holding three or five percent of his assets in California mortgages in, in the form of a CDO in a contract he's never read. In security interest, he's, he's never perfected. In houses, he's never seen. In a state, he's never visited. And, and, and his only comfort is that he's, quote, diversified. Well, it, it ends up not working. It ends up, you know, saving him a little bit of risk, but then he ends up spending a huge amount of money hiring middlemen to do all this analysis for him. And as we found out in this crisis, the middlemen's objectives are not necessarily the same as his. And these middlemen set him up for a perfect fraudulent scheme in which he doesn't really quite know what he's investing in and doesn't have time to, to monitor the investments or supervise the management. We're speaking with John 
R. Talbot. The book is The 86 Biggest Lies on Wall Street. Where do we stand today? I, I know that you've, you wrote your book on Obamanomics, uh, a trickle-up theory of economics. Uh, in to listening to you characterize our economic crisis that we've went through and are still in, uh, it sounds like we were simply, as a country, swindled by crooks, uh, just to simplify it, but it sounds like we were set up and taken for a ride. Now, do you see have any hope that the Obama administration is going to do something about this? Do you think that they'll step forward and, and prosecute? Do you think there's there should be there uh, will be an investigation after a year or so after things have settled down and and uh, and Obama stops saying we have to get past all this? Or do you think he's put it in in someone else's hands? Do you think maybe uh, Eric Holder will get around to this eventually? You know, some people will get prosecuted. You know, the Bernie Madoffs will get prosecuted, but but it'll be, there'll be show trials, right? They won't get to the fundamental problems that are systemic, uh, that are problems with the, the entire system. Uh, you know, Obama is a self-described incrementalist, and he is a community organizer who understands you don't take on enormous, powerful, connected lobbyists and corporations and corrupt congresses unless you organize the people to back you and can somehow get their power organized where they where you can be successful. So his strategy is different than mine. His strategy is to build a strong base of popular support, and then we'll have to see uh, what he does on taking on corruption in the government and on Wall Street and in corporations. Okay. Now, if you you could change, uh, I'll put you in Obama's place. And if you could change, uh, forget about prosecution. Just think of of one thing that you would change, as far as the our, our the finances in this country goes. Is there one uh, department or one law that you would concentrate on right off the bat to uh, push through? Yeah, and, and this is where our approaches would be different, right? Yeah. I mean, normally I would attack the biggest problem first. But because of the powers that be, the media, the lobbyists, the corporations, I would fail. But I think the American people are so upset about this and know it's been going on for so long. They were screaming for change when they elected Obama that I think if I were the commu- had the communication skills of Obama, I think I could rally the people now to rise up and end what I think is the most corrupt practice of all, and that's lobbying and campaign contributions to your Congress. I mean, when we say it in technical terms, it sounds minuscule, but let me say it more clearly. People, corporations, are paying your congressmen to write laws that benefit them. I mean, it it couldn't be more criminal, right? And And so I think Obama ought to switch and not be an incrementalist. He ought to stop and say, look, all good Republicans, Democrats, and independents rise up with me and tell these corporations this game has changed, that that, that we are no longer going to allow people to avoid regulation by making donations to their congressmen. Well, uh, John R. Talbot, you're speaking to the choir. You're preaching the choir on this one. We have been talking about campaign finance reform and and, and its effect uh, on our on our leaders for a long time. Uh, we, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we've run out of time. Uh, the book is The 86 Biggest Lies on Wall Street. John R. Talbot, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Signals. Well, thanks so much for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. 
And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.